Well, guys, we're finishing up Jonah today. And then we're going to do Nahum, in case you're wondering what we're going to do next. We're going to do Nahum for two weeks. And if you're wondering what Nahum is about, Nahum is basically the sermon that Jonah wished he could have preached. It's just a really a couple years later after Jonah, and it's the Ninevites didn't do so bueno. And so anyway, um, Steve's going to kick us off with Nahum next week. We're just going to be Nahum for two weeks. So take couple moments over the next week or so and read through the three chapters related to Nahum. I'm looking forward to wrapping up Jonah today, though. So earlier in the week, I forget what day it was, to be honest, um, we were getting ready to, to go to sleep, and I went to go take our dog out one last time to go use the bathroom and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm half asleep. I didn't turn the light on. And we're going out in the backyard, and he goes over. And then all of a sudden, he just, shoo, he just darts out of the way. And I was like, what's going on? <laughs> it's one of these things. It's like almost 11 o'clock. It's like, what's going on? And then I see this white thing, and it's just kind of like waddling. And I said, oh, did Kodiak attack a bunny? That poor bunny. That's not a bunny. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I think that, is that a skunk? Did he? And so then Kodiak runs back in the house. And sure enough, he had been sprayed by a skunk. And he's rubbing himself all over the carpet, all over the couch, all over the... And I'm like, just kind of like this, not knowing what to do. And I go and I tell Gene, I'm like, I think Kodiak got sprayed by a skunk. And then he jumps up on the bed and Gene's like, yeah, he did. <laughs> So at this point in time, I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> and so we bring him to the bathroom, and we give him a bath. And then it's like, I said to Jean, I said, what do we do now? She's like, we go to bed. What else can we do? And I was like, I guess you're right. So we pray, and we go to bed. Whole room, whole house smells of skunk. And um, we wake up the next morning, and it's gone. It's like no, And I'm reading in the morning, and it's like, okay, I shouldn't have done that. I did that. I shouldn't have done that. It's like, in the, you read the articles, and it literally is like, leave your dog outside. Go get on clothes that you'll throw out, because you'll have to throw them out. Don't wash your dog until you have gloves, because your hands will smell for a week. And all the, I was like, everything we could have done wrong, we did wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the smell was gone. And so Gina and I were like, couldn't this have been a cooler miracle? Like, couldn't this have been when you prayed for the guy with the club foot, you know, and then all of a sudden he's jumping around? The skunk was our miracle. That's the big one for me, guys, the skunk miracle. Why do I bring this up? Well, perhaps you've had a friend over the years here and there. You've had a friend where you shared the gospel with him or her. You told them about your faith, and they responded somewhere along the lines of, you know, I would believe in Jesus if only I could actually experience one of these miracles that you read about in the New Testament. If that stuff is real, how come it doesn't happen anymore? How many people have either said something like that or heard something like that? Probably all of us. And so, you know, whether you're someone who believes and you're a follower of Christ, or whether you're someone who you're skeptical, you're really not there, you know, you're supportive. It's not that you're anti-religion. You just don't really feel like it's your thing. The truth is all of us can relate to this desire to see some kind of sign or miracle. 
anything to prove, yeah, God, you're there, you're listening to me. And hopefully it would be a miracle that's, you know, I don't want my, I don't want to go home today and have my house smell like skunk, but maybe a cooler miracle than the skunk removal would be also kind of nice. You know, those desires that we have, and I'm sure we have all had them or have them, those desires aren't unique to our generation. It's not that our generation is any faithless more than the other generations that have come before us. And the request to want a sign or a miracle or proof or something like that, those desires aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. Matter of fact, God gave a sign to Abraham to confirm his faith. God told Gideon to ask for a sign. And so these things do happen in the scriptures, as we're going to see. But there are plenty of people who claim, and maybe some of you even in this room claim this, there's plenty of people who claim that the reason they don't believe is because they haven't seen a miracle firsthand, and if they saw a miracle, they would believe. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. Matter of fact, uh, you know, we pray for miracles in the Muslim world, and you hear stories about Muslims having dreams and visions of Jesus, um, and remarkable healings. Um, you know, the missiologist scholars say, and I think I'm going to go on the low side because I couldn't find the source in the book because it's like this big. But it's something like between 50 and 70% of power encounters, in other words, a miracle, don't result in saving faith in the Muslim world. And we have talked with Muslims who had a dream, had a vision, some of them multiple times over the course of their life, and they still don't want to respond. In the case for faith, Lee Strobel argues that people who say, if God would just give me a miracle, I would believe, he says those are the same people that if God parted the sky and pointed at them and spoke with them, they would reason it away as a weather phenomena or aliens or a Chinese spy balloon or something like that. They would come up with a reason for why this isn't actually God. See, most people who make comments like that and they say, I want a sign, they actually aren't genuinely seeking to believe. Most of them are innately trying to justify their own skepticism and unbelief. And so it's arguing from the absence, right? And maybe that's you. This is exactly what the Pharisees did with Jesus, by the way. That's what they did with Jesus. And Jesus points to Jonah in his rebuke to them. And that's why we're talking about this. And so what does Jesus say? Let's take a look. We're actually in Luke, 20, uh, Luke 11, uh, kind of continuing with what Eric began reading in the beginning of our time together. So Luke 11, beginning in verse 29. Now, when the crowds were increasing... He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Jesus was a real crowd pleaser, by the way. This generation is an evil generation. That was his opening statement. He wasn't trying to get more Twitter followers, for sure. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a messianic title. The Son of Man be to this generation. 
So just prior to these verses, Jesus had been dealing with hard hearts. That was the passage that Eric read. Basically, Jesus was going about. He was teaching with authority. He was healing with authority. He was casting out demons with authority because he's the authoritative greater son of David, the anointed king. That's one of the significant things of his baptism. Okay, And so here Jesus is, he's been healing people, he's been casting out demons, doing these exorcisms, and the Pharisees, as they see that, their response to him is not, we believe you, their response is, you do this by the power of Beelzebub, right? And I think the NLT that Eric read translates that as Satan, um, but really this is a reference to Baal, the pagan god of the Canaanites. Right? That was the, the pagan god that the Canaanites worshipped. You see that in the Old Testament. That's the constant tug of war in the Israelites' hearts was for this, the, this false god Baal and their affections for him. And so they accused Jesus of blasphemy, essentially saying, you're a follower of Baal or Baal, depending on where you're from. And then they say, look, if you're really, if you're really who you claim you are, you know, how about you turn some of them fishes and loaves into a feast. How about you give us another sign? Another sign. Now, Jesus knows their request doesn't come from a place of true desire, true need. Their, play, their request comes from a place of being hard-hearted. So this isn't someone coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, come help my daughter. She's ill. I know you can heal her if you simply come you can heal her. This isn't that. This isn't someone saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Heal my blindness. This isn't that. This is something completely different. This is a request from a place of a heart of stone. And the truth is that miracles do nothing for a hard heart. We see that as far back as the book of Exodus, when we see Pharaoh is encountering these 10 plagues, which were miracles, by the way, and they were miracles that were very on the nose because they were directly attacking the deity structure, the cosmological structure of the ancient um, Egyptian world. And every time one of those plagues or one of those miracles happens, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. And then what happens is God hardens his heart. And God hardens his heart. And what we see are those miracles, because they were dealing with a hard heart, they didn't do anything to actually break through the callous. They just propagated the destruction that Pharaoh was headed towards. So in order to respond to the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, Jesus is going to point to two Old Testament stories. We're not going to have time for the one today because I'm long-winded. But we will talk about Jonah and the Ninevites, which we've been talking about for five weeks, hence the long-windedness, okay? And so in Jonah, this is, if you're joining us today for the first time, you're like, I wasn't here for those five weeks, thank goodness. And so this is what we want you to know. In Jonah, we read about this prophet named Jonah, whose name means silly dove, and he has a missionary call to go and to preach against the city of Nineveh, which is a great city, a great big city in the kingdom of Assyria, which is in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Now, rather than obey this call, what happens is Jonah goes as far away as possible, and he tries to go on vacation in Ibiza. And that's his goal. It's a port at the other end of the known world. 
Now, while he's on the boat to Tarshish and the deep house music starts and he thinks it's party time, God brings a storm. He brings a storm that the sailors who are in charge of this boat, they just can't handle. It's a supernatural storm. The harder they try, the more the storm pushes against them. And so they, they pray to their gods, and they cast lots, and they finally realize that Jonah is the source of this. And Jonah confirms that. He says, yeah, this whole storm thing is my fault. God told me to go to Nineveh. I refused. But if you throw me over the sea, into the sea, this will stop. And so terrified but desperate, they toss him into the sea. Immediately, a giant sea creature, this Leviathan, comes and it swallows Jonah whole, and the seas are stilled, and the sailors repent and believe. They make sacrifices, they make vows, and they worship the God of Jonah. And there, in his watery grave, Jonah is swept down to, it says in chapter 2, the roots of the mountain. Now, some scholars actually, and I agree with them, you can judge me later, or now, some scholars believe that he was actually dead, that Jonah was actually dead in the belly of that great sea creature, and that God did a miracle. It says in chapter 2, verse 2, he brought Jonah out of the belly of Sheol, which is a Hebrew way of saying the grave. You know, I was reading uh, on the internet about Jonah over the last month and a half, and all of the skeptics say things like, well, he couldn't have been swallowed by a whale because their mouth is actually very small, and the plank, you know, they eat plank. First of all, it doesn't say whale. It doesn't even say fish. It says this great sea creature. So we don't know what it was, but everybody gets so hung up on how did he get swallowed by a whale when it's got such a small mouth and the stomach's not very large, and so how did he survive for three days in the stomach? You know, I've seen the cartoons. He's got like a little hobo stove, and he's making a can of beans. Seems impossible to me, and that's the perspective that people have, but the reality is this. People are asking the wrong question. Maybe we shouldn't get hung up on how did he survive. Maybe we should be thinking maybe he didn't, and that's an even greater miracle than how did he survive. Well, whatever happened, three days after Jonah found himself exploding or vomiting back into daylight as the fish projectile tosses him onto a sandy beach. And then this time, God says, arise, Jonah, go. And he goes to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh, and he arrives, and he preaches. And the pagans, the Ninevites, they repent and believe. And repent and believe, repent is to turn or to change, change your minds, change your direction. And so the Ninevites were worshiping their pagan gods, and they were worshiping all of these, uh, the, all that comes with that. And then when Jonah says repent, it means that they turn the other direction, they stop doing those things, they stop worshiping those things, and they choose to trust, believe in this God that Jonah is proclaiming. They repent and they believe. But the question is this, why? Why? And I think Jesus in Luke 11 might give us some wisdom. He says, Jonah became a sign. Now, in, in a parallel, in Matthew 12, Jesus says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
But the way that it's worded in Luke builds on that by saying Jonah became the sign. In other words, there was something about Jonah's ordeal which made them receive the message that he proclaimed. Now, we don't know what it is. So from here on out, it would be conjecture, right? So what was it? Was his skin bleached from the stomach acid? I don't know. Did the sailors go up the Tigris and they just wound up saying, oh yeah, we saw this guy, there he is, right? Was it one of those things? We don't know. We don't know what happened and it doesn't really matter for our purposes. Whatever happened to make Jonah a sign, we know that it was enough to affirm the credibility of his message. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, and he says it multiple times, I'm just rephrasing it. Think about this. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke, I think it's Luke chapter 4, he says, so that you can know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Jesus says, if you're not going to believe my words, believe my works, because my works point to my words, and they confirm exactly what I've been saying all along. And so whatever happened to Jonah, Jonah became a sign in his, his metaphorical death, burial, and resurrection in the great sea creature, and the Ninevites repent and believe. And that's why I think Jesus says, as Jonah became a sign, so will the Son of Man. In other words, if you zoned out, here we go. I know some of you are zoning out. I can actually see you. I don't know if you know that, okay? In other words, as Jonah's death burial, and resurrection, or more accurately stated, as Jonah's death, burial, and revivification affirmed his message to the Ninevites, even though they were pagan and ignorant, Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection will affirm the message that he's been proclaiming, that he is the Messiah. And who will know, who will hear? All who have ears to hear. But those who don't have ears to hear will not hear it. And so the point is this. Jonah's sign was his death, his burial, and his revivification, his revivification, the fact that he came back to life. The reason I'm not saying resurrection is because resurrection refers to coming back to life forever. If you're revived, you come back to life to die, right? Jonah died again. So the miracle of Jonah was his death, burial, and then coming back to life. And the sign that Jesus is going to give is the same pattern that Jonah gave, but it's going to be even more powerful, and it will prove his identity as a Messiah. Are you guys following me? So the miracle of his atoning death, that's the first miracle. You realize that God himself, in this God-man Jesus Christ, God would condescend to be born in our world, that he would humble himself to be born in this world, to be born in a stable, to be born to a, um, in, a, in a terrible situation, into a poor family, not to be born into the, you know, the Taj Mahal of Galilee or whatever it was, that Jesus condescended, that he would live a perfect life, that he would live with obedience to the Father, but then he would be executed, although he didn't do anything to deserve it, but that's fine. That's what needed to be done because Jesus would be executed as a sin-absolving sacrifice. 
if justice, if this idea of justice, every right will be, uh, every wrong will be righted, every wrong will be punished, if this idea of justice is to actually be meted out on an eternal scale, on a universal scale, then that means that either we need to pay for everything wrong we've ever said or thought or done, or it means that someone who doesn't deserve to be punished will be punished for it because then it would no longer be applied to me. And that's what Jesus' death is all about. It's a substitutionary death that Jesus dies so I don't have to die. When our kids were really young, we explained it this way, even though it's not perfect, but they would see the cross and we would say Jesus had to go on the cross so we don't have to go on the cross. And they understood what that meant, even as little kids. That's the miracle of his atoning death, the miracle of his atoning death, that God himself stepped down into our world to dwell among us and then to die as a sacrifice to appease his own wrath, essentially. Then you have the miracle of his burial. You have the fact that the author of life, the one who holds all things together, the one who all things were created by him and for him, the one who breathed life into Adam with his spirit, the, the God who was hovering over the waters when he created all things and said they are good, created humanity and said it's very good, this same author of life would descend into death, into Sheol, into the grave, into the realm of the dead, so that he could, like a Trojan horse, he could defeat death from the inside out. I fully believe that Satan thought he was victorious when Jesus was on the cross. He thought he had finally crushed the seed of Eve, and now he had won, because Satan is that arrogant. But then Jesus descends into death, and he essentially picks up those city gates just like Samson, and he heads home. It's a beautiful picture. And then you have the miracle, of course, of his resurrection, that after ripping off the gates of hell, metaphorically, Jesus throws them on his back. He marches into life eternal, defeating sin and death. What a beautiful picture that we have. And Paul says this is the gospel. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the essence of the gospel, and it is the miraculous picture of the gospel that we have as a signpost in Jonah and then a reality in Jesus. We love signs and wonders, don't we? I mean, we would love to see signs and wonders. There are entire branches of Christianity which chase signs and wonders. Frankly, I wish I saw greater signs than skunk removal. That would be great. I would enjoy that. That being said, let's not lose the forest in the trees. Jesus said in Matthew and in Luke that needing a sign for proof is symptomatic of a wicked generation. He says an evil generation seeks a sign. That's not a good thing. 
the desire saying, I need to see a sign and then I'll believe, or I need to see a sign and then I'll know God is with me, or I need to see a sign and then that's not an admirable quality of your faith. It's actually a damning condemnation of your, the condition of your heart. And that flies in the face of modern Christianity, which tells us very much the opposite. I already mentioned it before, that there are so many Muslims who have experienced miracles from Christ yet not believed. Every person on this planet experiences the common grace, the fact that the sun shines on you despite your wickedness, the fact that God still brings the rain, he still brings crops to grow, he still blesses us with these wonderful things of family and friends and creation and the beach, and there's so many blessings that we have that we ignore because we want more, we want more, we want more. I know that the hub, I wasn't, it, I added it to my notes this morning because I know that it's the hubbub right now. The Asbury, right? Is Asbury a revival? I hope it's real. I pray that it's real. I pray that the spirit is moving. I don't really think it's my business because I'm not there. So I'm not going to write a blog about it or anything like that. But this is what I would like to say. None of you need to go to experience it. You don't need to go. God doesn't live in a building. He lives in his people. And if you're God's people, then God lives within you. So you need to travel to Asbury to experience the presence of God because anywhere two or more are gathered, there he is. And what, like we sang in that worship song, does his spirit dwell among us? He does. He does. He doesn't live in, in buildings built by human hands. And he doesn't need anything from mankind, for he created all things. And nothing was created without his desire, his will, his permission. And in previous days, he overlooked that ignorance. But now he commands all people to repent. Because he's fixed a day when he's going to judge the world and he's shown us who the judge will be by raising him from the dead. That's Paul's argument in the book of Acts chapter 17 when he's arguing with the Greek philosophers of the Areopagus. I want you to remember this reality. Ten million signs and wonders will never turn the world to Christ. For those of you who are in this room and you're skeptics, I would like to say this to you. Ten million signs and wonders will never change your heart. It will never change your heart. Why? Because the greatest miracle, the sign of Jonah, has already been given and proclaimed to you. And people will either believe it or they won't believe it. And in part, the reason they won't believe it is because they will choose not to believe. Because belief is not a matter of experiencing the miraculous, and neither is belief a matter of convincing the intellect. Faith is the confidence in things unseen, right? The certainty of things unseen. And remember how Jonah responded. Remember how Jonah responded after the repentance of the Ninevites. 
He didn't say, finally, look at this miracle. I finally saw the miracle that would soften my hard heart. No. What happens after the miracle is that Jonah gets angry, he gets bitter, and he rejects the Lord's grace. You see, despite the miracles, despite the experience in the whale, and despite the message that he carried, Jonah's heart was still hard. And such was the case with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Despite the miracles, despite the experiences, despite the message, despite the prophecies, despite the empty tomb, the tomb is empty, and the Pharisees say to the guards, here's some money, don't tell anybody. Their heart is still hard. And such is the case today. Despite the fact that you are seeing your spouse change, despite the fact that you are seeing answers to prayer, despite the fact that God is increasingly and ever kind to you, many hearts will remain hard. Verse 32, I'm skipping. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah's here. Jonah's preaching was simple. He said, God's going to overturn your city. And despite their background as pagans, and despite their ignorance, we saw last week that it says they didn't know their right hand from their left, this spiritual idiom meaning that they were walking in darkness. They repented. They believed. Jesus's preaching was simple. He said, follow me. Repent and believe. I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to Father except through me. And the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners and the scoundrels repented and believed. But the learned population, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees who were Sadducee, they didn't. They resisted. They were too smart. They were too educated for their own good. They knew what the Messiah would look like, and they were certain of it. Jesus says that the men of Nineveh will stand up against that generation. I want you to imagine that, that one day there will be a giant judgment, this great white throne judgment, where every man, every woman, every child will stand before to have their life weighed out. And the Pharisees will stand, and the Ninevites will come against the Pharisees as a witness against them. I want you to imagine the shock and the disgust on the Pharisees' face when Jesus welcomes the Ninevites into his kingdom. I don't even know if he'll have to toss the Pharisees into the outer darkness. They'll probably go willingly because that's what happens with a hard heart. And so what does God want us to hear this morning? Listen, many people claim that they would only believe if they could see proof. They think themselves too smart for the fairy tale of Jesus. They think the world is too big, too complex, too many roads that lead to heaven, to some utopian world. 
that all religion has validity. You just need to be sincere, even if it's sincerely wrong. They don't think the evidence supports Christianity because they point to problems in the church, which is ironic because the church is a poor representative of God instead of looking at who Jesus was. They need more proof or they simply won't believe. But Jesus says, you have enough proof and you don't need any more because you have the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was delivered from the body of a whale after three days, so too Jesus was delivered from death by resurrection after three days. And you have sufficient evidence to believe. And if you choose not to believe, you are no different than the Pharisees, that wicked generation who wanted one more sign. That's what Jesus is saying. You can be upset with me for reading it. You can be upset with me for explaining it. But I didn't write the book. And so what do we have? Well, we have the multitude of prophetic writings pointing to Jesus. We have the miraculous accounts of Jesus' life, of his death and his resurrection. We have the testimonies of the early church who willingly died in horrendous ways. I mean, the most, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Most historical accounts say that all but one of them were, were martyred. Okay? John was boiled alive in a vat of oil. You don't do that for an April Fool's joke. These men were convinced it was real. You also have their changed lives. You have their changed hearts. You have transformed people. You have transformed societies. You have 2,000 plus years of church history, or 2,000 years of church history, with all of the good, the bad, and the ugly, including the brilliant writings of men and women who have gone before us. And then today, you have a front row seat of how God is working in the people around you to change them, to grow them in their love, to grow them in their patience, to grow them in their forgiveness. What else do you need? And I'm sincerely asking, and I apologize but the truth is this, no miracle will ever be sufficient to create faith within a person who loves their sin or their self-reliance more than anything else. Because until you realize your own desperate spiritual need, you won't come to Jesus. Therefore, the question before us is this, what will we do with Jesus today? Will we be like the Ninevites, those sinful yet soft-hearted people who repented and believed? Or will we be like the Pharisees who had all the right answers, but Jesus said they were a wicked generation that kept demanding more and then hardening their hearts every time God gave them a little morsel? The Ninevites will be witnesses against them on the day of judgment. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is I don't care if you came in here as the hardest-hearted, most arrogant person on the planet. Jesus has good news for people like you. And the good news is this. He died so your sins could be forgiven. And the good news is this. He was raised from the dead so you could live forever.
And he gave you his Holy Spirit so that you could follow him as king and actually live for something besides yourself. That's good news. It's good news for all of us if we receive it. You guys know that I don't normally do this, but I want to give you a chance to respond to the gospel today. And so would you pray with me? Father God, I don't know um, the condition of people in this room, Lord. Over the years, we've seen people who have come for years who we thought were believers, and then they fell down on their face and they said, I don't think I ever actually believed. God, I just pray that if there are any in this in this space, Lord, who have yet to surrender to Jesus, and today they desire to surrender to Jesus, I pray that they would do so, that they would cry out to you, that they would tell you today. They would ask to be forgiven. And I pray, God, that they would be willing to tell somebody else, whether that's me or a loved one, so that we can help them follow you and grow. I pray, Lord, that for some of the people who take communion today, that it would be the first time they've ever taken it as a new creation, and they would realize that the previous times were just religious ritual. And we thank you that we don't have to get cleaned up, that we don't have to believe for a certain number of hours or a certain number of years, but we can believe right now, and we can celebrate the crucifixion of Christ with the Lord's Supper in just a moment. God, would you give us grace today? We pray these things in your name. Amen.